famous subject in the Bible, pretty famous little story in the Bible is in Acts chapter 9 where we find ourselves today. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. This is the conversion of Saul. So, so far Saul in the book of Acts has been the bad guy. He actually participated in the death of a good guy, Stephen, giving his life just to helping people, helping widows. That's what Stephen was guilty of, doing a good job of helping widows. And uh, uh, Saul tacitly participated in the murder of Stephen out there in public. They, they cornered him up. I remember when I was in Israel, they took us to the place where they believed the uh, crucifixion was. And uh, I don't want to wreck this for you, but I just want to tell you, <clears throat> thanks to one particular hymn, everybody believes the Bible teaches that Jesus was crucified on a hill far away. Here's what you need to know. And this is, this is for free. This is not in my notes. And I realize that I'm wrecking it for you. Jesus was not crucified on a hill. It's not what they did. It's nowhere in the Bible that it was a hill. In fact, what they would do is they would crucify people along the way. The path, the cart path, the footpath. The reason they did that is they wanted as much mockery as possible, and they wanted the fathers to teach their sons See what happens when you steal? Don't steal. Sometimes there were hundreds of crucifixions along a busy path like telephone poles. So if you were going here to there on that day, you wouldn't see one or two, but you'd see scores of people being crucified. Stick with me. In the olden days when you were walking or your donkey was pulling your cart, you did not go over a hill. What did you do? You went around the hill. And so there may have been a hill there, uh, but if it was, he was crucified at the bottom of the hill because that's where the path was. There were no paths over the hills. Okay, that's not what they did. They, they would rather walk a mile and a half around a bump than half a mile over a bump. Okay, sorry I wrecked that for you. You can still sing on a hill far away and enjoy singing it. Just know that it probably wasn't on a hill. And I know that wrecks the mental image. So uh, they took me to the place where there's this gouged out spot. It's like a half a circle, you know, of, of a gouged out, natural gouged out spot. Twice as tall as here and about as wide as here and, 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 and gouged out. And this is where they would take people to stone them because it'd stick them in there and it's hollowed out. You know, it's a sap. And they would form the other half of the circle here and there's no place to go. And there's a backstop, you see. And so they would take them to stone them. And that was, and you can see right there the, the way it looks like a skull. And that's probably where the crucifixion uh, was. And that may well have been where they stoned Stephen, they took him outside the city. You weren't allowed to stone people inside the city, but Saul tacitly participated in that. He guarded the people's coats when they were murdering Stephen, who was guilty of nothing except for helping the widows. So Saul, to this point, was a bad guy. Oh, a good, uh, by today's sociology, he was a good guy that was doing bad things. 
Uh, so he, he did that. Let's read verses 1 through 9. And Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, that would be Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He might tie them up and carry them to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. So he trembled and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight. During that time, he neither ate nor drank. Verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. He was on his way. And as he approached Damascus, verse 3 says, suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. You know, Saul had every reason to live. Saul was perfectly, he was wired to be doing what he was doing. He was the Jew of Jews. He was trained to be a Pharisee. He was really smart in the Old Testament. He was enthusiastic about serving God. I don't believe Saul had to set his alarm clock in the morning. I think when the sun was coming up, he couldn't wait to get up and do that day's job and go out there and, and do what he thought that he was doing uh, for the Lord. And in this case, he was single-handedly taking it upon himself to annihilate these people called Christians that were of what he said, the way. And so he was busy, uh, verse 1, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I'm certain that Saul felt like God was impressed with him. I bet you God's happy with me. He said every morning when he got up, and he said every night when he went to bed. But looking again at verse 3, he journeyed near Jerusalem, and suddenly a light came from heaven. Suddenly. How many of us, and we were just talking about this, how many of us know that one's life can turn on a dime suddenly? Within the last year, at least one time I can think of, my life turned on a dime. Suddenly. Absolutely surprisingly. We talked about people in the ditch. On the, on, you've seen them on the side of the road. They weren't thinking about it. You've heard of guys just minding their own business and they got you know, in the middle of some bank robbery or something. Suddenly. You, you know, a week and a half ago I got a text on my phone from the superintendent. Please pray for such and such a pastor whose grandson was down on the beach uh, swimming and they couldn't find him. You see, when that kid, when that young man went into the water that day and got on his jet ski off of Okaloosa Island and was putting around on his jet ski, and when he dove off that jet ski to go down and look for some sand dollars, the last thing on his mind was that, and it's a mystery what happened, nobody knows, but the last thing on his mind was that maybe he'd, he'd get a cramp and not be able to swim and drown. Last thing on his mind was maybe when he was coming up, he hit his head on the bottom of his jet ski and got unconscious. Whatever it was, it was the last thing on his mind when he pulled his bathing suit on, getting ready to be excited about going on. The, suddenly, 
everything changed. Just this week, as you heard me pray, my cousin's father-in-law was out just fixing a piece of farm equipment. Fifteen seconds before that farm equipment toppled over and crushed him and killed him, it was the farthest thing from his mind. He had no idea that in 30 seconds he would lay dead, crushed by a piece of farm equipment that he had used a thousand times in his life. Suddenly. You know, as I watch the evening news, uh, it's almost without exception, every night there's some car wreck, some drowning, some uh, shooting. Suddenly, lives are changed. And none of them, when they were getting dressed that morning, had a clue that that day their soul would be required of them. Uh, you know, Saul had this situation. He thought he was living for the Lord, and suddenly everything got changed, one thing uh, for another. I, want, I have a question to ask for you. Uh, are you as ready as you can be for a suddenly moment? Right now, you know, we, your mind can go anywhere and do anything. Your mind can say, ah, bah, humbug, who cares? Your mind could do that. You're free to do that. Or your mind can be, wow, this is a fascinating thought that Pastor Cliff's talking about. Uh, I have no guarantees for 45 minutes from now. I have no guarantees for 45 minutes from now. I, I, I wonder what I might should do in my own spirit to live more appropriately for the Lord. I wonder if I've got something on, on my heart. You know, the New Testament talks about don't let the sun go down on your anger. I, I wonder if you've got some uh, angst against somebody that if there was a suddenly moment in your life, you'd wish you had to work that out before. Because you don't always have a chance after the suddenly moment. Cousin's father-in-law, you know, what, if he was upset with somebody, the curtain was closed and he doesn't have a chance to fix that. that. That boy that was in the Gulf, if he was upset, if there was some rift between his mom and him, it was, it was a suddenly moment. There's no chance for him to fix that thing. So I'd ask you, you know, that suddenly, you know, this light shone around about uh, uh, Saul and, and he had a suddenly moment. Saul's life was shut completely down. It, look at verse 9. He was three days without sight, and he neither ate or drank. The Lord got his attention. Saul couldn't go anywhere. The Lord wanted Saul. Let me tell you something. The Lord wants you. I don't care your age. The Lord wants you wholeheartedly to be his. He's jealous for you. We are, you know, he is the shepherd and we are his sheep. He wants us. He loves us. And when we're wandering around not paying proper attention to him, he'll work towards getting us back. He, he wants us uh, that bad. Turn your attention to verses 10 through uh, 16 with me. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. This is not the Ananias, of course, that died in chapter 5. That was a common name. There was a believer named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to a street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he's praying. And in a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. 
And here, he is the, and here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he's chosen vessel of mine to bear the name before Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. For I'll show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Look at verse 13. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many things about him and how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. You see, whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, or Greeks were Gentiles, but you know, uh, uh, some Greek guy and maybe involved in politics, you probably uh, uh, knew about Saul. If you're a Christian, you knew about Saul. Damascus is bearing down on 150 miles away from Jerusalem. This is only weeks after everything happened in Jerusalem. They didn't have the internet, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have a telephone. They didn't, you know, media didn't exist. There wasn't newspapers and radios and all that stuff. And yet, Saul's reputation had already preceded him as far out and probably beyond uh, Damascus. Saul had a bad reputation. His appetite for annihilation of Christians was wet when he, as I said earlier, indirectly participated in Stephen stoning. Now, according to... Uh, Verses 1 and 2 we looked at earlier, he was determined to destroy by all means possible, including, verse 1, murder, all Christians everywhere. That was Saul's ambition. Probably the average Christian trembled at the mention of Saul's name. You know, we're removed from it. We know it's a story to us. But imagine as it was playing out in real time. People knew that this guy, Saul, had already seen one guy killed, had received a, a permission to go and catch, like you might catch slaves or something. He had received permission to go into other cities, and, and possibly your city, and, and to catch and corral Christians and tie them up and carry them back to Jerusalem. And he was breathing murderous threats against them. And uh, you might think, oh, well, the Christians, they shouldn't be too nervous. Of course they were nervous. He was completely disrupting their lives, possibly uh, even going to kill them. Now, you're a Christian, and you're just fat, dumb, and happy with your little family, and you've turned over a new leaf, and you've decided to follow this man, Jesus. You've, you've heard maybe th through some person who has left Jerusalem about Jesus or, or Philip or some other evangelist has come and you raised your hand and said, yes, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. And you give your heart to the Lord, you and your whole house, and you go down and you get baptized. And this is a new thing for you. And, and now you're setting out, you're, you've got a skip in your step and Jesus is your Savior. And, and then you learn that there's a guy going around for looking for folk like you and he's going to kill you. He's going to have you dead when he finds you. You're nervous. It's, it's, it's 6 o'clock in the afternoon. You're, you're just pushing away from the dinner table, and there comes a rapping at your front door. You're not expecting anybody. A nervous spike twinges up in your spirit. Ah, oh, surely that's not Saul. Surely he's not coming here to fight. Surely nobody gave him our name and, and told him we were part of the way too. They were nervous about it. Uh, they they uh, w would probably tremble uh, when they heard that unexpected knock at the door. Ananias knew about Saul long before Saul showed up. 
uh, again, about 150 miles away, and Saul's reputation had already uh, preceded him. Ananias knew about him. In terms of Christianity, in terms of Christian virtues, in terms of uh, the nearness to deciding to follow Christ, Saul was completely lost in terms of what we understand to be either saved or almost saved, nearly saved, mostly saved. There's no such thing as mostly saved. But Saul was completely lost in terms of Christianity. He was utterly lost. One might say he was absolutely hopeless. One might say, you'd be hard-pressed if I said, you know, here's a saved guy. Try to design the worst unsaved guy that you can. If you sat down with a group of friends and you had a pad of paper and a pencil, you'd come up with some things. And, and Saul would probably fit the description of the most unsaved guy that you can Breathing murderous threats against people. Just If you knew that there was a guy in North Okaloosa County and, and you knew his ambition for life was to locate Christians and then murder them, you'd say he's a pretty lost guy. That's a guy I don't want in my neighborhood and that's a guy that probably shouldn't knock at my front door because up here in North Okaloosa we know how to take care of ourselves. Country folk can't survive. Okay, I heard that song on the radio a couple weeks ago. But anyways, we, he, he is completely, absolutely lost and, and, and hopeless. Saul might have even been worse than the prodigal son in terms of likelihood of redemption. But, just as was the case with the story of the prodigal son, while well, everybody else may have given up, remember the story of the prodigal son. Well, all the workers in the father's house might have given up. Oh, I'll call him Johnny. Oh, Johnny, he took his money and ran. We're never going to see Johnny again. Johnny's lost. And the older brother, wow. Oh, that Johnny, if he ever shows his ugly head around here, I'm just going to pinch his head off. I'm done with him, man. What, who does he think he is taking dad's money? And, you know, who knows what he's doing? He knew that he was spending it uh, on crazy living. People had given up on the prodigal son, uh, too. While everybody else may have given up on the prodigal son, you listen to me, while everybody else may have given up on the prodigal son, the father, while everybody else may have given uh, up on the prodigal son, the father never gave up on the prodigal son. Amen. He never gave up on him. The Bible says... Uh, that while the son was yet a great distance off, the father saw him. A as I imagine this story, I imagine you know everybody else that day is doing what they're doing. The son's got his chores, the older brother's got his chores out there, the servants all got their chores out there. And for some reason, I have, as I see the story, I see this house situated on the street in such a way that it's got a front porch. And I'm thinking rocking chair. It might not have rocked. But I'm thinking that that father had his eyes trained on the horizon as he sat day after day after day. 
And this one day, he saw a dot blip up on the horizon, and then shoulders. And then what is this familiar gait I see? What is this familiar walk I notice? Only one person I know walks like that. Long before he could identify the, uh, the uh, features of the face, long before that, he recognized a silhouette. And you know, everybody walks a little different. It's, an ama- you know, you know, it's just an amazing thing. And the Bible says that that father, while he was yet a far way off, got up and ran towards his son and put his arms around him. I don't know if you know this or not, but you need to because it helps you understand the story better. In those days, uh, it was most unprestigious, you know, uh, the opposite of decorum. It was inappropriate to run. In those days, you never acted like you were in a hurry. You always acted like a Supreme Court justice. You just sort of sauntered around like this. For to rush and to hurry was an indication that something was wrong in your life and and now you're having to make up for it by having to hurry to fix it. And so people were in the habit, if you were a cool guy in those days, you just never hurried. But the father, seeing that familiar speck on the horizon, that familiar gait, that familiar walk, he got up and while he was yet a far away off, he ran towards that hopeless, that everybody else back here had given up on him, but not the father the father whose eyes were trained on that horizon. And he ran towards him and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him and he gave him a ring. And I believe he said, welcome back, welcome home. I think the uh, Lord would have me to tell those of us that have sons and daughters and Saul's, those of us that have sons and daughters and even Saul's, because I said that Saul, I believe, was south of the prodigal son. Prodigal son, he's just a selfish, immature kid who took what was his and went and blew it. Basically what his problem was. And he had the presence of mind, at least, while he was eating corn with the pigs to go home and ask to be a servant. He never killed anybody. We're not told that he killed anybody. But Saul, he's a tough character. I think the Lord would have me to tell us that we might have sons or daughters and even Saul's who are completely, utterly, absolutely, seemingly, hopelessly lost. I think if I asked for a show of hands, many, if not most of us, would raise our hands and say, I've got a loved one that is utterly lost. Amen. The Lord would have me to tell you that uh, he knows their whereabouts. He uh, knows their situation. And maybe more importantly, that he loves them and he hasn't forgotten about them. He's not like the older brother and the servants. He is the father. Even the times that you forget, a whole day goes by that you don't even remember to pray for your loved one. The Lord knows about him. The Lord knows about her. And uh, he loves them. I guess he'd like me to tell you that he's heard your prayers. As Wanda reminded us a few weeks ago, he's bottled your tears. He knows. Sometimes, you know, we look through the lens and we see the short game. The Lord knows. 
and he's got a plan. And, and just as Saul was sought after and redeemed, so your loved one will be sought after as well. He desires to... Don't you let the devil steal your lunch and try to get you to be convinced that this is hopeless and get you to give up and quit praying and quit believing because the Lord hasn't quit. The Lord is still rocking on that front porch. There has to be some sign of, you know, uh, you know coming around. But it can come. The Lord knows how to steer people. Hey, the Lord can orchestrate things. I want to refer back to the story about Saul. Do you see how actively the Lord orchestrated this thing? You know, the Lord can do it. Saul, you need a pinch of blindness. You, you, you just, how about you just don't see until we get some things fixed? And uh, Saul had little to do but cooperate with that. I you know, I could go on and on about this. I'm thinking about Jonah, determined to run the other way. Okay, Jonah, give you a pinch of my idea what that's like. The Lord has a way of gathering people up who are lost, getting their attention and bringing them back. Do not get hopeless because the situation seems hopeless. Read the last couple verses here in this part of chapter 9. Ananias went his way, entered the house, and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul... I want you to hear the words that he said again. Brother, I want to hear that again. Brother Saul. Hmm. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized so that when he received food he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples in Damascus. I'm glad that at the end of the day, Ananias was motivated by his faith and not by his feelings, because I'm here to tell you that the last thing in the world that Ananias wanted to do, for two reasons, the last thing he wanted to do was go and, and be an instrument of deliverance for Saul. I said two reasons. Can you think of what they are? Number one, fear. Even though Ananias is believing he's hearing from God, you know, are you sure, God? In fact, in the, in, in the previous couple of verses, he says, are you, you know, poetically, I'm going to paraphrase, are you sure, God, this is the Saul that's murdering people? Am I hearing you right, Lord? Do you want me to go pray for him? So number one reason is fear. And I'm going to tell you the number two reason. Uh, vengeance. Why don't we just let Saul get what's coming to him? I know when someone crosses me, I'm going to talk plain for a minute, okay? When someone crosses me real bad, and I know they did it on purpose, and then they fall in a pit about it, especially if it's a direct result, if they fall in a pit directly resulted from having, somehow it's just the way it works out, that they did me really dirty on purpose, and they go home with that, and I'm left holding the bag that they put on me, and then I find out that that action caused them to come in a pitiful position, it'd be real hard for me to go on and pull them out of that pit. Real hard. Because my position would be, why don't we just leave him there a while, and maybe the longer he's there, the more lesson he'll learn. I'd have a way to justify my bad behavior. I'd say, I want him to learn the lesson real good so he doesn't repeat it. See, I could, talk, I could try to talk God into it, 
why he should listen to me and let that guy sit in despair for a while. And I'm sure Ananias, for two reasons. One, he was afraid to go near Paul, Saul. And the second reason is, he's got what's coming to him. If he's blind, I don't really want to go pray for him to be delivered. Yet, Ananias wasn't motivated by his feelings. He was motivated by faith and obedience. Let me tell you something. Someday, God's going to put on your heart to do something, and you're not going to feel like it. And maybe it's because of fear. Maybe it's because of vengeance. Maybe it's because of a half a dozen other reasons. You're not going to feel like it. This is what Pastor Cliff is teaching you today. I don't care what you feel like. God's not going to ask you what you feel like. When the Lord has a job to do, his first question is, you know, do you feel like doing thus and such for me today? I don't want to seem like God's a meanie, but this just in. Frankly, he doesn't care how you feel. He just wants you to obey. Just obey. And I'm glad that uh, Ananias went by faith and obedience and not by feelings. Uh, sometimes it can be hard to pray for people who are undesirable. Like this Ahmadinejad guy over there in Iran. I'll be honest with you, it's hard for me to pray for him. I don't like what he says. I don't like the way he looks. I don't like the way he carries himself. I don't like his arrogance. I don't like 50 things about him. So it's hard for me to pray about him. It's hard to pray about undesirable people. Maybe you've got someone a lot closer to you than Ahmadinejad. Or if I'm not saying his name right, I'm sorry. I'm not an expert about his name. That's a complicated one. But maybe you've got someone, maybe it's someone who's under your roof. Maybe it's someone who's next door or across town. You've got no excuse to not be praying for them. No matter how undesirable that situation might be, the Lord expects you to intercede for him. Sometimes it can be hard to pray for undesirable. But Ananias, he obeyed. And not only obeyed, but even greeted and treated Saul lovingly. You heard me made a little issue of that when we read it. Brother Saul, dignity. He went there, politely greeted him. Brother Saul, showed him some love. One of the things I like about this part of the story is uh, who Ananias was. Actually, who he wasn't. You see, Ananias was you. Ananias wasn't the pastor. Ananias wasn't an apostle. Ananias wasn't an evangelist. Ananias was just a guy that went to church last Sunday. And now he's praying and God told him. He was not somebody real special in terms of a title. What I like about this story is that the Lord knocked on Ananias' heart. And I don't want to make a big deal of this because you guys are pretty good about this and don't need, need a lot of teaching on it, but I just want to remind us the work of the kingdom is not done by the pastor. The work of the kingdom is done by the folk. Okay. For one thing, be physically impossible to do what needs to be done by the pastor. For another thing, it's just inappropriate. It's not the way it's organized. And I love that Ananias... You know, it doesn't say that, you know, the spirit went to the pastor of the church, uh, such and such at Damascus, first church at Damascus. It just went and visited Ananias, not a leader, a deacon, or an apostle, just a believer, just a disciple, just a church member, just a regular guy, just a follower, just a devout Christian. I'm going to close with this thought. A Christian whose best and possibly only, and I do not want you to miss this point, a Christian like Ananias, whose best and possibly only 
ability. He might have only had one ability, one special ability. I'll tell you what it is in a second. The first time I heard someone who had only this one ability, I, uh, I was very impressed with it. I'll tell you, I heard it from Ricky Thompson. Ricky Thompson, you'd really like. Ricky Thompson was a guy about 35, 40 years old. He is from Jackson, Mississippi. He uh, came to our little church. He was going to be a missionary. And he said, uh, you know, I'm, I've never been to Bible school. I barely can read the Bible as good as you. You know, I'm not even that great of a Christian anymore than you are. And what I do for work is, he says, I work at an electrical supply place. You know, these electricians go to a special place where you don't go, but they buy their, con their wires and stuff like that. And somebody behind the counter helps them. Usually those people are gruff. They're like junkyard helper people. They're just, they got no tolerance for the general public. You know, you go in there, to whether it's to a junkyard or one of these plumbing supply or electrical supply. If you don't know the language and they know you're a regular person, they're kind of, I don't know whether they do it for sport or just the way it goes, but they're kind of gruff with you. It's been my experience. So he was just one of these guys at electrical supply place, Ricky Thompson. And God put on his heart, I need you and your wife to sell everything. And I remember him saying that when they were selling everything, that it was no problem selling everything in a whole house. Just open your house and put tickets on everything for sale. He said the only thing that almost made him literally cry, he was a man's man, the only thing that almost made him literally cry was when the guy came and gave him 50 bucks for his favorite recliner chair. He was saying goodbye to his recliner chair. He said, you know, the Lord asked me to do this to me and Gracie to move to Guatemala to help with this, this guy to, you know, up in the mountains with these people and to just help. Don't, I don't know Spanish. My wife doesn't know Spanish. We got this little girl. What was her name? Do you remember, Wanda? Asia. Got this little girl. She's about 14 we got five reasons, God, why this is a bad idea. But God said, you've got the ability. And Ricky said, what ability do I have? He said, you've got one ability. You've got the availability. He said, all the rest I'll take care of. And so they sold every stitch of everything they had. And they carried their little daughter, Asia, and they moved down to Guatemala. And uh, they began to do what they had to do. They were working with, uh, they're working with folks that are part of the same mission organization as Sandy is um, down there. He left the electrical supply, everything he knew, he left it because he had availability. Listen, if you only got one ability, make sure it's this, availability. God taps you to go do something, you be available. I don't ever want to get to heaven and find out one of my friends in, in the church where I was the pastor was telling God no because they didn't, for whatever reason, feel like it. I guarantee you, Ricky didn't feel like selling his big, worn-in, comfortable Super Bowl recliner for 50 bucks because the house had to be empty because he had to get to Guatemala. But he had one ability. He had availability. There's no job that's too, too, too strenuous for you, and there's no job that's too below you that God might not tap you to do. Amen. Sometimes we think, that's below me. God could just get somebody else to do that. No, you be available for that. Sometimes 
God would have you to do something, you say, God, you know I'm not qualified for that. I, one year ago, I know that, uh, and I don't know how it goes over there. I don't snoop and I don't, de what do they call it, deprogram or what, not deprogram, uh, debrief Wanda too much about the girls over there. But I know a year ago, she, Wanda would not have felt like she would be the, uh, a pick for someone that should lead a woman's you know, Sunday school. I'm just talking out of class now. I hope, uh, you know, hope you don't mind us getting personal or whatever. But you know what? Apparently the Lord said, why don't you do that? And like Ricky, she said, well, I don't have much ability, but I got availability. So I'll do it. It seemed too much for her. How could I do it? Who am I? You know, who am I? A little bit like Mary, the mother, you know, who, you know I love the Magnificat, that poem, you, you know, that you're reading about. You know, who am I? I'm just a humble little servant. What? That's exactly what made her so perfectly the mother of Jesus, that, that she didn't have this big, huge... God has enough pastors and workers and people with heads this big that he doesn't need more. He needs some people with, with a little bit of an inferiority complex. I believe that helps God get her done when people have a little bit of inferiority complex. You know why? Because those people spend time in the Word, and those people spend time before the throne of God saying... If you don't help me, this is a disaster. That's exactly what he needs. People who say that if you don't help me, this is going to be a disaster. The only ability you got is availability. No job's too big. No job too small. You just, you just when the Lord tells you to do something, you just do it. If, if there's going to be a crowd and they're going to notice they're going to clap your hands, shrug it off and you know try to get out from under as soon as you can. If nobody notices, praise God. God notices. God notices. Don't you worry about how much fanfare goes along with it. You uh, may not have many, uh, many abilities, but you've got availability. And absolute last thought I have is, has God put a Saul in your life? You know, <clears throat> I promise I'm going to quit here in like one minute. I've been a pastor for a few years, and this is the common prayer I hear. Lord, my son's in Seattle. Please send, Lord, someone to him that will love on him and share with him the gospel of Christ, that will befriend him and that, and that will, will show him love. That's a good prayer. But guess what? There's someone in Seattle. And they're praying, Lord, my son's in a little country community somewhere north of I-10 in some part of the panhandle of Florida. Send somebody to him. Send someone that'll sh show him some love. Send somebody that'll, that'll share the gospel with him. It's not just your kids and your kin that are scattered abroad that need someone to bump into them. We have, as I said the other week, people in our own zip code that need to be loved on and talked to. Amen. Amen. And so, is there a Saul in your life? And if there is, and if you're an Ananias, don't be scaredy pants. Just go do what you've got to do. The Lord will help you. This has been my experience. You take one step, and the Lord will put you on one of those the Lord will just start moving you along. You don't, but you've got to take the first step.
you've got to take the first step. He will not take the first step. You take one step, and then, every, then there'll be some good godly momentum going your way. But you've got to take the first step. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you um, for your word, for your spirit, and uh, for the challenge that's been ours this morning. And I pray that uh, we would never lose hope, uh, particularly hope for loved ones. And I pray, oh God, that uh, we would allow ourselves to be instrumental to minister to other people. And even if, you know, now gone is the devil's lie that we have no abilities. He might be right about 99% of it, about theology, about being able to preach, being able to do a lot of things, but we have availability. And usually... That's the only prerequisite that you have, God. Help us to be available to do what you'd have us to do. In Jesus' name we pray.